Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Hey, we made it to church without incident. That's good. All right, we're going to do a quiz, and uh, I'm going to ask you to keep track of your own scores. It's not one of those where we shoot the QR code tonight. I just thought we'd do this easy. We can do that another time. Keep track of your score. You may want to keep track of it on your phone, okay? Questions are going to get harder as time goes on. All right, number one, are you ready? Okay. Oh, this is the title of the message. Don't look in Jonah yet. Okay, first one will, did I skip it? That's going to be disappointing. Did something try to show up? Okay, hey, you got something there. Let's see if it does what it's supposed to do. Uh, all right. Well, hey, I've got them on my paper here, so I'll read them, and you just answer them. How's that? Okay, number one, where was Jonah from? Where was Jonah from? Okay, don't answer out loud. Just on your phone or a piece of paper if you have it or in your mind. Okay, where was Jonah from? Okay. Think more specifically than the promised land, okay? Just want you to do that. All right. Everybody ready for number two? <clears throat> when you're ready for number two, look up, and I'll know. Okay. All right, here we go. Number two, what city did Jonah go to depart from? Okay, what city did Jonah go to to depart from? <clears throat> okay, you got it? Everybody got it? They went. He went to a city to depart. Where was Jonah going? Where was Jonah going? Not to the city he was going to depart from, but ultimate destination. I'm just going to give you, if you say Hawaii, that's wrong. All right. Okay, you have it. Number four. Where was Jonah sent by God to? That's an awkward way to say it. but Where was Jonah sent to? You have it? Everybody that wants it? Okay, look up at me if you're done. Okay, number five. What empire? Okay, now listen. I'm about ready to tell you an answer to a previous question. You can't go back and add it, all right? So you're locked in at whatever that is, but we're on the honor system, so you have to be honest. And Jesus sees. Okay, what empire was Nineveh a part of? What empire was Nineveh a part of? No uh, Googling any answers, all right? You could just hold the microphone button down when I ask the question, and you could maybe figure all that out. All right, and this one, you can have multiple answers to this. Who from the Bible was a contemporary of Jonah? Who from the Bible was a contemporary of Jonah? 
write down as many as you can think of, and I can confirm six different people we know of. And then beyond that, I'll have to take your word for it. Okay, we ready? All right, number one, um, where was Jonah from? Okay, anybody want to help us with that? Where was Jonah from? Anybody know? No? Tarshish, where was he from? Well, that's a tricky question because there's Israel, the whole land, and there's Israel, the northern kingdom. Okay? So I will accept Israel, the northern kingdom, or Gath Hefer, if you remember <laughs> the specific town he's from, or uh, the tribe of Zebulun. Any of those will work. Okay? So if you got that right, give yourself a point. Okay? The second one is what city did Jonah go to to depart from? Okay? And what do we know about that? It was a coastal city. It was Joppa. All right, if you got Joppa, you can give yourself a point and a pat on the back. All right, where was Jonah going? All right, Bill, where was Jonah going? <laughs> it's Tarshish. <laughs> yeah, if you put Tarshish, you're right. We don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but speculation is it's on the Spanish coast somewhere. All right, you realize all those countries were still there. They just had different names back then. Okay, so he was headed somewhere over there. So if you put Tarshish, you got it right. Where was Jonah uh, sent by God to? Nineveh. All right, if you put Nineveh, you got that right. Good, good. Uh, and then what empire was Nineveh a part of? Anybody else? Assyria. If you put Assyria, you got that right. And this I'm referring to in, in Jonah's time. Later on, it does become a part of Babylon, but not during Jonah's time. Okay, and then uh, finally, who from the Bible was a contemporary of Jonah? Anybody know anybody that's a contemporary of Jonah? Oh, Jeremiah's later. Okay, um, the king of the northern kingdom at the time, at least one of the kings during Jonah's time, was Jeroboam II. So you can write that down if you like. And then the northern prophets would have been Amos and Hosea, they would have been around during the same time as Jonah. In the southern kingdom, Uzziah would have been king, so King Uzziah, and then at least we know Isaiah and Micah were alive during the time of Jonah. Okay, so count them up. Anybody get, anybody get six? Five? Dean got five? I didn't see Dean write anything down. I'm not sure. It's all up there. Okay. Okay. All right. Five. Anybody else get five? All right. Dean, you're the winner. Let's give my hand for, for being an excellent Bible scholar tonight. Okay. When I heard the story of Jonah, we're going to be in Jonah. See Jonah run is the title. And for some reason, um, it's not wanting to jump to my different areas here. So we may have to do something a little bit different. Here we go. All right, so um, this is a map of the Mediterranean. You can see over here. Can you? Is it? Does it show when I touch? Okay, a little pulse there. Mediterranean here. We've got uh, Persian Gulf over here, Red Sea down here, Egypt. You can see down to the left there, and Arabia, which is now Saudi Arabia, right? 
And then Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, overlaps a little bit with what's modern-day Turkey into Syria, maybe even down uh, almost to at least some of Lebanon. You can see that, and then it would be down through modern-day Iraq. Okay? And Babylon was one of the cities in the Assyrian Empire, and then Babylon began to grow in the next century after Jonah, and it eventually um, defeated, defeated the Assyrians and became the primary empire. And so we're, we're dealing with, prior to the exile, we're dealing with the time that's, that's prior to the fall of Samaria in 722, probably somewhere between 760 and 740 B.C. is the time that Jonah lived. And uh, I just want, I want to talk about this tonight. I think there's some important things. There's a lot of division that's going on in the world around us, and we can draw up lines, and, and we can draw sides, and we can say, I'm on this side, and I'm on that side, and and uh, we can resent people who are not on the right, the same side. Of that, and that could be politically. That could have to do with uh, what's going on in Ukraine. That can have to do with what's going on in Israel. And I just wonder if we think um, from a scriptural point of view how God would see all of this. Now, there are things that are happening in the world, just like in Jonah's day, that are, there are big things happening on a grand scale, and they have a lot of fallout in different areas. When I heard the story of Jonah when I was a little boy, I was fascinated mostly by the whale. Anybody else? Like, whatever the whale is, you know, they don't exactly know what this Hebrew word means. It can mean fish. It can mean sea monster. It can mean whale, which uh, I think they would have seen whale as fish back then. I don't think they would have classified it as something different. And so when people say it wasn't a whale, it was a fish, I don't know that they made that line of distinction back then. In fact, it could just be a sea monster, something we don't even know, maybe megalodon or something like that. Who knows what it is? But whatever it is, um, it uh, I was fascinated with that, and I thought of Pinocchio in the belly of the whale. Anybody else think of that? When you think of the story of Jonah, Pinocchio in the belly of the whale. And I didn't know the other parts of the story or probably even care. I only know uh, that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, and it's because... He ran, but I didn't know why Jonah ran. And so that was something that I found out later on, and it really has a lot of implications for how we live the Christian life. I must have thought that he was scared to go witness those people. He didn't want to go talk to them because he was afraid that they would beat him up or do something far worse to him. But I don't think that's what Jonah was afraid of. I'm certain that from the rest of the book of Jonah, that's not why Jonah didn't go, because several times he's ready to die so he's not afraid of dying. At least maybe he just, something has so overtaken him that he's like, I'd rather die than this. But that's not the reason. That's not the problem. And I, I, might, have been, I might have thought he was scared, but, but not for the reason I thought. I thought he might have been scared that they would reject him. But from the story, I see now that he hated Assyrians. That's why he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated Assyrians. And he might have been uh, scared what people at home would have thought. I don't know. That seems not to be the primary concern. But there was a lot going on in the world. Let's let, just read the first couple of verses here, and uh, we'll get the sense of where this is going, and then we'll spend most of the rest of our time in chapter 4. But notice here, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Anybody remember a passage in the New Testament where uh, something like that is said, has come up before me? 
Anybody remember with Cornelius that it says uh, when, the, when the Lord spoke to Peter, you need to go down to, I think, Joppa. And he says there, Cornelius is there, and he's a righteous man, and all of his good deeds have come up before the Lord. The Lord sees both the good and the bad in the world. He sees it all. Okay, So in one way, that ought to bring us a sense of comfort that it's not, it's not entirely up to us to create a just world that God will see to it. We need to do our part, but in, at the end of the day, God is the one who brings justice, and he will set all things right, okay? So we can't, we can't have utopia in this world. Do you know that? We strive for it. We, we think if we elect the right people or dictators take over a country that they can create the kind of utopia that everyone searches for, but it's never that. Are you with me? So anyway... Um, yeah, he's he's uh, called to go to Nineveh. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Look at verse 3 here. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He, won't, he, he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After having paid the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. What's wrong with that picture, what's wrong with the idea of fleeing from the Lord? It's futile. Can you ever get away from the Lord? You can't. Everywhere you go, He's there. And also, everywhere you go, you're there. And so, all of our problems with God go with us wherever we go. So, it's better not to run from Him, lay down our weapons, surrender on the spot, and it's much better for everyone if we do, especially ourselves. It says, then the Lord sent a great wind to the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went and said to him, how can you sleep? Get up and call upon your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots and find out who's responsible for this calamity. And it's interesting it worked, isn't it? Because, like, we're not about the casting lots or drawing by chance. But they did cast lots, and it fell to Jonah. And it says in verse 8, so they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Remember I told you the other day that when people ask you, and you have to tell him you're a pastor. Not everybody's super pleased with that. Well, he's got to say he's a prophet. And not only is he a prophet, but he's a rebellious prophet. Okay, so he's left. And uh, what kind of work do you do? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And from what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? And they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and he asked, they, they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it was my fault that this great storm had come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before, and they 
Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you please. And they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And so the sea is calm. And we see here this picture of Jonah. He's, uh, he's dealing with a time in his life and the time in world history where there's a lot going on when Jonah prophesied. First of all, the kingdom of Israel is divided. They're not as strong as they would be if they were together. They have two separate identities. They go to war under two separate kings. They sometimes war with each other. They're not the, uh, they're not the fulfilling the potential that God has for his people. Do you understand that when God's people are divided, we're weaker for it? Okay, So that's part of it. That's part of what's happening here is that the kingdoms are divided. And then there's rebellion at home. So where Jonah's at under King Jeroboam II, King Jeroboam II listened to Jonah according to Second Kings in one particular spot, but, but he also perpetuated idolatry just like Jeroboam I had done. And so people aren't doing well spiritually back home. And then you have world powers that are fighting off one another. We have, uh, we have Egypt down here in the corner, and it's a world power. We have Assyria, and Babylon is beginning to emerge. And so you've got these world powers. And if you look at this, Israel is right in the middle of all this. Assyria and Egypt, you can see that. Okay, And, and Babylon over here, uh, a little bit further down in this spot. Okay, So Israel's right in the middle of all of that. And this is going on all around them, and there's concern about what might happen. Um, you know, we sometimes think, well, this is a new situation that we're in in our world today, that the world powers are rising up, and what about, what about this nation and that nation? It's always been that way, as far as I can tell. There's always been nations and kingdoms rising up and kingdoms falling. I don't mean that we're not at a unique time in history. I'm saying that this has always been the case. If we're waiting for all of that to die down and calm down, the only time it will do that is when Jesus finally comes and sets up his kingdom, and then every other kingdom will bow its knee to our Lord and his Christ, right? So that's what we can look forward to. World powers and God unfolding in the midst of all of this, his plan for salvation of all people. He set his people within the territory that he gave them, and the plan is that ultimately he's going to bring a Messiah and save whoever will call upon his name from any nation, any tongue, right? That's the plan. That's where it's going. Israel is a light to the nations in the middle of all this, and, and uh, he is fulfilling and unfolding his plan while all of this world history is going on. And the thing that often strikes me is that when the major things in world history are taking place, God is working at, in a diff, at a different level. You understand that it's not always in the spotlight where he's working. These, I mean, the things that would have made the news is what's going on with Assyria right now? What's going on with Babylon? They're a, they seem to be rising up and gaining power. What's going on with Egypt? That would have been the things that would have made the, the papers, okay? But meanwhile, God is doing something of eternal significance in unfolding his plan. And that's really important for us to know is it's not always the things that are in our face and visible 
that is the thing that God's doing. There's other things that God's doing we can't always recognize unless we're perceiving with spiritual eyes. Now, the other thing is, is that uh, around 745 B.C., a, a um, leader rose up in Assyria whose name was Tiglath-Pileser, something like that, the third, and he was set on imperial conquest, which means that he wants to expand his territory, and he's willing to do it with violent means. And he wasn't a nice guy, frequently had border skirmishes with Israel, uh, attacks on small villages. Okay, does that sound familiar? And an imposing larger threat. And it seemed already people had been killed up to this point, taken into slavery, and spiritually threatened by people who felt like might justified their religion. Do you realize that um, the Assyrians believe that if they were victorious over a nation in battle, it's because their God is greater than the people they conquered. And so this was often the, the thought is that our God is greater than your God. And so in Jonah 1 uh, through one, 1 through 3, God is asking Jonah to go into that situation where they're an enemy. They're hated by Israel, and Assyria hates them. How are they to respond? How is he to respond to that? And what we find that he does is he rebels, and he goes a different direction. Okay, so if you want to look up here at the screen, I'll do the best that I can. Okay, so Jonah's probably from somewhere right in here where that square is. Is there a square? Okay, he's somewhere right in there. And uh, Syria's up here. Okay, come back. And where Jonah is, Joppa's down here. So what that means is that Jonah goes in the opposite direction. If Assyria is northeast, Jonah goes down to Joppa, which is southwest. Can you see the rebellion in that? He's not only going somewhere, he's going exactly the opposite way that God is calling him to go. Okay, that's that's rebellion on Jonah's part. And he, he does, and he says, I'm not doing that. Even if Even if God calls me to do that, I'm not doing that. I think it's interesting in the New Testament, this just occurs to me now, is when Peter is on the house, the rooftop of Simon the Tanner. Do you remember that? Somewhere around Acts chapter 10. And uh, God says to him, I want you to go and minister to Cornelius, who's a Gentile. And Peter says, I can't. That's If I go into his house, that's make me unclean. And so the Lord puts down this sheet with unclean animals, and he says, take and eat. No, I can't do that. That's unclean. And he says, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. And then the guys come to get Jonah, and you know where they, or excuse me, Peter, do you know where they take him? They take him to Joppa. I think it's interesting because it's almost like there's a, a relevant symbolism that carries through here. Will we go God's way when he calls us to those places that we, we don't like? And uh, that's what Peter ends up doing, and amazing revival breaks out there. Jonah, on the other hand, doesn't obey. Um, if you'll notice, in the book of Jonah, everything else that God commands in the book of Jonah obeys him right away. Have you noticed that when you've read through this book? Everything else obeys God right away. Consider these in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord sent a great wind, and the wind blew. Okay, that's chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord provided a huge fish, and the fish went. Okay, so it didn't go the other way. And uh, in chapter 2, verse 10, after Jonah has been swallowed, 
the Lord sent word, uh, sorry, the Lord commanded the fish, and it, sorry about this, but it vomited, that's the language in the NIV here, it vomited Jonah up. So it obeyed the command of the Lord. And then we have in chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, the Lord sent word to Jonah, and this time he obeyed. So the second time he obeys. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, the Lord uh, called for Nineveh to repent, and they obeyed the first time. Not that interesting? Jonah didn't. The Ninevites did. Okay, and then um, the Lord provided a plant. Remember that? And it grew, chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord provided a worm, and it ate the vine, chapter 4, verse 7. And the Lord provided a scorching wind, and it blew, and it wore Jonah out, chapter 4, verse 8. All of these obeyed God the first time. The only thing that did not is Jonah. Yes. The the sailors offered sacrifice, and that's a good point, that they even respond to whatever is going on. They're responding to the acts of the Lord. And so I think that's really important to understand that Jonah in this is shown as the only one who's rebellious. He can't seem to get it. So I'd like you to turn to chapter 4, and we'll pick up there. There's a lot that's going on in chapter 3. There's a prayer from Jonah, and then Jonah reluctantly goes to Nineveh, and uh, he proclaims the message that God is calling him to proclaim. And I'd like you to notice in chapter 4, verse 1, um, that God sent relief and he relinquished from destroying them. But to Jonah, verse 1, this seemed very wrong. Do you see what's happening here? Let's put this in context. What God is saying is good, Jonah thinks is wrong. Okay, You ever been there where God acts and you like... How can that be, Lord? That doesn't seem just. That doesn't seem right. What Jonah was uh, doing was throwing a little bit of a fit here. Why do, you, why do things that God calls right sometimes seem wrong to us? Why do you think? I'm going to, if, you, if, you're, if you've got an answer to that, go ahead and contribute, and I'll share what I think in just a moment. But um, why is it that sometimes when God says something's right, um, we sometimes think it's wrong or it seems wrong to us. We don't have the big picture. Is that a in stereo there? All right. Hey, that's good. His ways are not our ways. Okay. Yeah. And by overdeveloped, sometimes have you noticed that when it comes to things like vendettas that it always grows? Like you feel like you've been offended more than you maybe have, and you go to the next step. And then the next person goes even more, and it just grows to the point of being murderous. Okay? Any, anybody else? Why are things that God says are right, they sometimes don't seem right to us? Dean? We are in a fallen world. Yep. John? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. They may not have they may not have liked to have gone through it, but they might be able to bless the Lord as a result of it. Yeah. Good. I think that just points out one benefit of scripture is that scripture gives us the panorama which we can't have in our lives because we live such short lives in comparison. But when you see over generations God fulfilling a purpose and moving in a direction, we can see, and I think this is one of the understated important things the Bible communicates to us, is God's plan unfolding. You can't see that in a day. I mean, you can see elements of it, but if you take a day, you might have a bad day and be like, how's this work in? But you start seeing it across lives and across generations, and you can see that God is doing something big. Evelyn? Yeah, where's the justice in that? We let our desires taint or change um, what we believe God would have us do. That happens a lot. Jake? Yeah, that's good. That really came home to me a few years ago during, um, I don't know if you remember when ISIS was going around destroying monuments of like different archaeological things. And I thought to myself, because from our perspective, it looks like those things last a long, long, and they've been around a long, long time. And I thought, what a tragedy that they're destroying all of that. And I think the Spirit of God spoke to me and said, you know what's even more tragedy is that people's lives have been destroyed, and some of them won't go to heaven as a result of that. And it really made me think that uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, said it in um, The Weight of Glory. He said, you've never met a mere mortal. Every soul will outlast kingdoms. You understand that when nations come and go, souls will still exist. People will still exist long after that. And not just people, but an individual. We outlast all of that in terms of longevity. And so I think that's... uh, that's a great point to to remember that the things that are most important are those things that last the longest. So, okay, good. Anybody else? Well, you guys took my thunder here. I'll just I I would say it this way: we don't always ha- we don't always share His purpose, and that's part of it. And the reason for Israel was to be a light to the nations, ultimately to bring the Messiah, who would save all who trust in Him, no matter who they are or what they come, where they come from. And the same can happen to us if we think that life is all about us and not about others. We're going to develop that same hard heart that Jonah had. And then I think a second one just goes right along with what you've said. We don't share the fullness of his character. God's character, his character is good and loving, which we'll see in just a moment. 
um, and I was thinking of when James and John were traveling with Jesus and the other disciples, and they came to a Samaritan village, and the Samaritan village rejected Jesus. Do you remember this story? It's in Luke chapter 9. And um, James and John said, Lord, would you have us call down fire from heaven and destroy these rebels? Is the essence of it? And Jesus sharply rebuked them. And uh, one translation says, you don't know what spirit you're of. That's not really my heart. And so sometimes we, uh, we don't see, we don't have the character that Jesus had. Obviously, we're striving towards that. But his love is a perfected love, and ours is a growing, hopefully, love. It's ironic that John should become the apostle of love, isn't it, after having said something like that? It's God's, uh, it's God's right. If, if God's right uh, seems wrong to us, then the problem, would you, would you admit this? The problem is with us and not with him. If God's right doesn't seem right to us, then the problem is a weakness in our character or our person, and that needs to be addressed and brought to him, and we need to ask him to help us to change. Notice how bad Jonah uh, doesn't want Nineveh to be saved. Okay? In chapter 1, verse 12, he would rather go into the sea. And we're not talking about like a Jonah who's probably got swimming lessons all grown up as a kid and can swim to shore safely. And in times when they had great charts and maps to know where everything was, Jonah is ready to go to his death rather than go back to Nineveh. And then you can see it later on in chapter 4, verse 3. He would rather die in Nineveh than see them spared. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. It says, Now, Lord, take, me, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. He's throwing a little bit of a tantrum, isn't he? A little bit of a fit. He would rather die than live. And then chapter 4, verse 9, um, he would rather die than see his precious vine destroyed. Do you see that in verse 9? God uh, allows this vine to grow up over Jonah and provide some shade, and then he sends a scorching wind to take it away, and he's proving a point. There's a point to all of that. But in verse 9, Jonah throws another fit, and God said to Jonah, uh, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is. That's audacity. It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. That sounds like a, <laughs> a little, <laughs> excuse me, a little tantrum, doesn't it? <clears throat> and so... He would rather die than see his precious vine destroyed. And so you see how Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to be saved. He's, he's angry with them. He hates them. He hates whatever conflict they're having with him, with his nation and God's people versus the Assyrians. And so God challenges him on this. Look at verse 4 with me of chapter 4. God asks him a question. Has God ever asked you this question about your feelings? Look at what it says there. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right? That's an important question. Uh, is it right for you to be angry? And the answer, the implied answer is no. Do you, do you get that as you read through here? That the implied answer is no, it's not right for them to be angry. And so Jonah uh, doesn't necessarily answer at this point. And there is an important lesson for us in our therapeutic culture. We view our feelings as sacrosanct, that I have a right to feel however I want to. That's not a Christian statement, that I have a right to feel however I want to. That's not a Christian statement. Um, we have more control over this area than we think, 
And um, by the power of the Spirit, we can say to our feelings, get in line. That's what David does. That's what others do. They don't let their feelings dominate them. This is kind of a theme that I come back to again and again. And part of the reason for that is because my feelings are so strong. And I'm not the only one. Come on, anybody else out there? You battle emotions. You can battle not doing what you need to do because how, how you feel at a particular moment. And so God challenges Jonah on this. He's angry. And you realize that when you're a Christian, you're not under the old management anymore. You're under new management. And who's the new manager? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And I would suggest to you also our feelings and attitudes are involved in that. And if you need a scripture for that, Romans chapter 12, that we're not to be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by renewing our minds. So God calls for us to adjust how we feel to come into alignment with what he says is right and true. But Jonah here is angry because God doesn't destroy his enemy, but uh, instead he showed mercy. And I think we should never rejoice in the downfall of a person or people. Do you agree? Maybe earlier in history of Revelation, um, God made allowance for people to do that. Like in the Old Testament, you see Exodus chapter 15, when they come through the Red Sea, and I will sing unto the Lord, He's triumphed gloriously, He's thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. And, he, and then His praise erupts. But I, I almost um, wonder here, I wonder if maybe that is not more a rejoicing that God has vindicated his people rather than rejoicing at the downfall of others. And if not, then let's keep in mind that that revelation, God's knowledge, knowledge of God progresses through history. And so what may have been allowed earlier on because they didn't have the knowledge of the love that God requires of us, that that has changed because now we've had the picture of Jesus. Come on. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We know what fuller love is than perhaps they understood completely in the Old Testament. But they did understand it. And I'll, I'll take a moment to show that in just a second. But Jonah is angry because God doesn't destroy his enemy. And um, the plant becomes an object lesson here. Look at verse 10 with me. The Lord said... You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. What's the short version of what that means? It's not your world, and specifically, it's not your vine. You didn't make this, and you're upset because you've lost it. You didn't tend to it. I'm the one who put it there, and you're mad now because it's gone. You see that God is using this as an object lesson. God giveth the plant and he taketh it away. Jonah is more mad now than ever before. Verse 9, look at what he says. Now, he doesn't necessarily answer the earlier question, but verse 9, God said to Jonah, is it right, again, this is the second time, is it right for you to be angry now about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. You know that God doesn't cow to tantrums. He doesn't give in to that. And so he's not, like, if you're mad and, you know, kicking the dog and throwing a fit and punching holes in the wall, that's not going to move God's heart. Come on, right? I mean, he doesn't, you're going to hurt your hand, you're going to hurt your foot, you're going to hurt your dog. But it's better to say, okay, Lord, I'm upset, but I shouldn't be. You need to change my heart. Help me. 
Help me to see things the way that you do. But Jonah's more mad now. And he rebukes Jonah's unjust attachment to the vine while wishing for the death of 120,000 people. And neither the vine nor the people belong to Jonah. And it's like God saying to him, stay in your lane, bud. I called you to come here as a prophet, and you're making this about something else. I love these people. He sees the vast ignorance of these people, and he still called them to repentance. They didn't know his righteousness. This is one of the last verses of the chapter here. He says uh, in verse 11, I think it is, where it starts, Should I not have concern over this great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left? And also many animals, for whatever that's worth. God cares about the animals, I guess we could say. But here he's he's saying, look, you're upset about this, but there's 120,000 people that they don't know righteousness. Right and left are terms for right and wrong in the Bible. Do you know that? So you turn not to the right or the left. You steer a straight course. It's, it's about uh, righteousness, and that's what he's dealing with here. Okay, so if someone's God's enemy... What probably should we do for them? Pray for them, okay? Any any emotions we should feel for them? Pity, right? Like God is, you don't want to be on God's bad side. We need to pity those who are on God's um, bad side. Okay, what else? We should be salt, reach out to them. Yeah, and what we're all called at one point, Ephesians, I think, and Colossians as well says something similar to this. We were by nature children of wrath, but God in his rich mercy with which he loved us, he, send, he sends Jesus to save us. So that our nature was to be enemies of God. We were all enemies of God, and he reached into our lives at some point while we were enemies, while we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and he doesn't wait for us to turn to him to come to us and to show his love for us. Okay, So if someone's God's enemy, I think we should probably pity them and pray for them. Uh, scripture says as much that we're to pray for our enemies. And then God changed Jonah's direction, but he seems not to have been able to change his heart. Why, why, would, why is that? You ever uh, done something that you didn't want to do? And he did it with a bad attitude. That's Jonah did. I, I always picture Jonah going into Nineveh with no enthusiasm at all. You know what I mean? Like the preachers who normally stand up and shout and want to get converts. They're passionate about it. But Jonah's not passionate about it. And I think he could have just been walking through the street saying 40 days, 40 days. God says that if you don't repent in 40 days, you're gonna, it's going to go up in smoke. What? What did you say, fella? Uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? That, that seems to me a Jonah-esque kind of thing. Like, he doesn't really want this thing to go through, but he's got to be faithful to God, and he's doing it with a bad attitude. And so the Lord deals with him on this, but I think part of the change of attitude has to come because we cooperate with the Lord. Like, I, I don't think he will force us to change our attitudes. I think we have to participate in that and say, Lord, I want a heart change. 
and there were some areas, one of the really sad things is that a lot of the church has been racist. How can that be? How can that be that a church could be, not this church, I don't think this church, I'm not saying that. I'm saying throughout history there have been times where the church has been racist and there's been a big divide between races on um, Sunday mornings. And how sad is that, that we would would somehow find a way to justify that and how there were people within history that justified slavery and called themselves Christians. That's a massive blind spot in my mind. And we have them today. We have other blind spots that maybe we're not recognizing. But thinking errors, yeah. Maybe they're thinking more about their prosperity than they are about what really God cares about. But I think an attitude has changed when we surrender it to the Lord. Look, Jonah already knew what God would do. If you look at verse 2, Jonah uh, prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord? This is the most unglorious prayer maybe in most of Scripture. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And so he recognizes God's nature, and this is one of the reasons he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go because he knew God in his character of love would show up in that moment. And so he's resisting because he doesn't want the Ninevites, the enemies of God's people, to be spared. So it occurs to me here that this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. I don't know if you've caught that before. John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This is like that because this is the great God who's compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And it's said nine times directly. It's quoted throughout Scripture. You can see it um, throughout Scripture at least nine times where this verse is quoted going back to Exodus and Numbers. And it's repeated over and over again. And many times, um, in addition to those nine times, it's said in another way. And here we have a God who in the Old Testament is rumored to be really mean. Right? Anybody heard that? The God of the Old Testament is a terrible tyrant. Well, not if this is true about him. He's gracious and full of compassion. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. This is the kind of God we serve. And when we use the word love here, the Hebrew word for that is hesed. And I don't know if you know this, but hesed is a covenant word where a greater shows undeserved love to a lesser than. And that's what God does here is he shows his compassion in that way. I'd like you to think about a few enemies of God's people, okay? What are some of the enemies? The Egyptians were enemies of God, would you agree? Do you know some of them went with Israel out of Egypt and became part of the chosen people? Did you know that? When they when the Exodus happened, some of the Egyptians went with them, okay? And then what about the Canaanites? Well, Rahab was one, and she's in the genealogy of Jesus. What about the Moabites? Remember, they got... Um, got enticed by Balaam to send some of their um, some of their less virtuous women into Israel to entice them. And God said, you're not to marry any of the Moabites. Somehow, this family moves to Moab. This Israelite family, family from Bethlehem moves to Moab, and they marry, and we get Ruth 
you know that? So enemies of God, Ruth was one. She became part of God's people. What about the Hittites? Uriah was one. What about the Pharisees? Saul was one, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes known as Paul. And what about the Romans? Well, Constantine was one. I'm sure we can find some better one than that, but he was one. What about atheists? C.S. Lewis was one. He was an atheist, and God touched his heart. And there there are several uh, former enemies of God who've been one to Christ. And I need to say I need to say this because one of the questions that may come is, does this mean we should we should never fight or never stand up for what's right? No, I think we do, and I think that there's even a place for justified war. And I don't have time to unpack all that tonight, but if you're interested in that, I would encourage you to read C.S. Lewis's um, essay called "Why I'm Not a Pacifist," and you can find that in. Um, the Weight of Glory. It's one of the essays there. And he talks to a group of pacifists who invited him to um, defend being able to fight in just wars. And he talks about that. So that may be of interest to you if you want to know uh, why it may be justifiable. Augustine believed that and others have believed that. And there are some that haven't believed that. And that's fine. But with all this um, that's going on today, people are divided. And everyone seems to be taking sides, and we forget that God loves people on all sides. Is that true or not? He does. And what if instead of drawing up sides along the lines that are typically there, what if we could find another way? Jesus did this. Like, you know, we tend to see things like in this binary, and and there's place for that. But there's also, when it comes to issues like this, Jesus sometimes sidesteps that binary and says, there's another way that you've not occur- has not occurred to you. Okay? And one example of that is when they brought the coin to Jesus. And the issue was, there's one side of people that says, we shouldn't be paying taxes to Caesar. And there's another group of people that says, we should be paying taxes to Caesar. And let's just, um, let's just go along with things. And Jesus sidesteps the issue and says, this isn't really the thing. Give that money if it has Caesar's image on it. Give it to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And he says, there's another way around this. They wanted to put him in a pigeonhole and say there's only two options, and Jesus often shows us another one. And uh, it can be this way with politics. It can be this way with uh, other issues that are going on in our world that uh, many people want to draw lines and say choose a side. And I think that oftentimes it fails to consider that there is an eternal kingdom that has eternal priorities that weigh upon all these things and that it's not all about that. If we are making, I'm just going to bring it up, if we're making politics the most important thing in our life and it's causing people to not want to hear from us, then I wonder, I wonder if we're somehow subverting the gospel with that. Like, the most important thing is not our politics. The most important thing is Jesus. Come on. True? Like, we shouldn't be dividing and losing our witness over things like that. And that's a touchy subject, but I think it's important to be said. Um, What if instead of that, we found another way? Of course, we need to stand up for truth, and we need to fight against oppression. But I wonder if we can do that without being hateful. And I think the problem which plagues us is that we make an enemy uh, about the people standing on the other side. And we need to remember that Jesus said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Actually, it's Paul who said that. But it's true, uh, even in 
that Jesus is teaching. So let me ask you one question about the enemies of God, Israel, and the church. Does God love them? I think so. And the theme of Jonah is that God loves people who are our natural enemies, and we should too. Jesus said, love your enemies. And so, and that applies broadly. It just feels like these days, everybody is looking for a division. Everybody's looking to get on a side. And what if we said, do you remember when, um, do you remember when Joshua is praying, getting ready to go into Jericho, and the angel, the mighty warrior appears there? Do you remember, anybody remember that? He's praying. And Joshua says to the mighty warrior, whose side are you on? Do you remember? And what does the angel say? Joshua says, are you on our side or their side? Yeah, neither. I'm on the Lord's side. Are you on the Lord's side, Joshua? And I think that's the important question for us tonight. And if we are, we're going to respond with his character. So stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention tonight. This is not anything, (coughs) excuse me, that we don't know. It's just a reminder. Father, thank you, Lord, for these words tonight from from your word. And I pray that in the way that you intended them, they would challenge us to be the kind of Christian who can love people who differ from us in views and every other category that might draw a distinction. Help us, we pray to share the love of Jesus with the character of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, and to lay down attitudes that would uh, run contrary to your will and your way. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.